This is Stu with Happy Jack's RPG Podcast, and I'm here with Keith Baker. And who are you, and what do you do that makes you famous? Uh, I am a game designer and writer. I'm best known for creating the Eberron setting for Dungeons & Dragons and the card game Gloom. More recently, I've started my own company, Together Studios, and we have made the role-playing game Phoenix Dawn Command, uh, and we're just coming out with a card game called Illimat that we made with the Decemberists. Now, just uh, b- before you got here, I was looking at the Kickstarter, which you said is a, a year, over a year old now? Uh, yes. So Illimat uh, is, we did last year, it did fantastic, uh, and we're just getting ready to deliver the game. It's been delayed by typhoons and forced power outages in China, but it will be here in about a month. And we actually just started pre-orders on Illimat.com uh, a couple days ago. Okay. Now, um, I, was, I was looking at it, and I was reading kind of the story behind it mm-hmm. and how it was kind of big, based on, like, a photo shoot for a band or something. Can you explain that? Okay. So uh, the Decemberists are an indie band in Portland. And in 2008, they were working on an album, and they were doing just a photo shoot, like, for posters and things like that. And uh, Colin Malloy, the, the lead singer from the band, said, well, okay, well, what makes this more interesting? If we were a secret society playing this weird board game, like, around strange places in Portland. And so the uh, Carson Ellis, who's a children's book author, who does, I an mean, artist who does all the art for the Decemberists, just whipped up this mysterious-looking board overnight. They took some pictures, and it's this big sort of, it was on a two-by-two piece of wood. It had a little box sitting in the center, uh, and they just took a bunch of pictures and tossed it in their closet for seven years. Then they met me because they play a lot of games. They like Gloom. We're all in Portland. And they just said, well, we've got this weird board. Could you make it a game? And I'm like, yeah, I could make it a game. And they're like, could you make it feel like it was like 100 years old and people had just forgotten about it? And I'm like... Okay, okay, I can do that. And they're like, and could it be sort of like a card game and sort of like a Ouija board? And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, I can do that. And that's where we are. And cool. So what, what, are, what are the game mechanics like? Can you describe them? Well, part of the point is, again, since we had that idea that it should feel like an old game, uh, it's drawing on sort of classic card game mechanics, especially games like Scopa and Casino. You know, basically I went back to a 1890 copy of Hoyle and just started looking through and saying, what are the games people don't really play much anymore? And so the core mechanic is about sort of combining sets of cards and collecting it. What makes it completely different, and you know, like, why play this when you could play, you know, Hearts or Gin, is it has this board. The board's set into four quadrants, and it has the box at the center. Uh, And so you sort of have four different sets of cards you're working with, but also the box turns as you play, and that changes sort of the strategic options. And that's sort of the dynamic element that makes it totally different from, uh, you know, any classic card game out there. Uh, And we also have these cards called luminaries, which are sort of like tarot cards that sit in the corners, and that, again, adds an element of uh, sort of replayability and variety to it and is also beautiful. Awesome. Now, uh, Eberron, that's probably amongst our listeners what you would be most famous for. Uh, I was talking to some people last night that said you, there was some sort of contest or something. I don't know the history of it, so I'd like to... Yeah, so this is the thing, is I always wanted to make role-playing games. Uh, when I got out of college, I'm like, okay, I have no idea how you get this job, and I ended up making computer games. 
And along the way, I started doing free plan- freelance role-playing stuff. You know, I did some stuff for Over the Edge, Goodman Games, Green Ranine. Uh, and I finally got the point after the third game I was working on, I had a bunch of just big MMOs that I worked on for like three years, and then they get canceled. And after the third game, I've been in the business for eight years, and nothing I made had ever gotten actually published. I was just like, I'm just sick of this. Uh, I'm going to quit and try and do role-playing free, uh, full-time. So quit. You know, it's going to be a rough haul. And then Wizards of the Coast announces this thing they call the Fantasy Setting Search. And it was basically sending as uh, uh, Wizards had, you know, fairly recently acquired D&D. They were working on 3.5. They wanted to do something new. And they said, send in a one-page description of a world. And they had a very specific sort of set of criteria you had to, to sort of fill in. And they got 12,000 entries. They picked 11 of those. Uh, had everyone write a 10-page description. They picked three of those paid us all $20,000 for the rights uh, and had us write 100-page setting Bibles. Then they picked Eberron, which at the time was not called Eberron. And then, you know, I went there, sat down with them. We we revised it and, and, you know, built upon the framework of what I created and all went from there. That's amazing. (laughs) It was a pretty amazing experience for me, I got to say. You know, I like to say I'm the luckiest nerd alive, you know. But, but you, you you had done some some stringer work for Goodman Games and stuff like that prior to this. Yeah, absolutely. And and it was funny because a bunch of people were really like, "Oh, this is like Kid Rock winning Star Search." And I'm like, <laughs> you know, I had never had anything published by Wizards. Like, I didn't even think I could send something to Wizards. You know, I had worked with, as I said, I did a bunch of stuff with Atlas Games, uh, a few things. I did a couple monster guides, the complete guide to Were Rats, the complete guide to Doppelgangers for Goodman. Uh, you know, and a lot of like. Uh, contributed a bunch of creatures to, you know, a bestiary that someone is doing. You know, it was, it was enough, like I said, I thought I could scratch out, like, you know, eating ramen sort of sort of life uh, doing this sort of stuff. But I was not by any means, you know, I think my favorite thing was some people basically assumed I was related to Rich Baker and that this was like a big nepotism thing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Bakers, we're all, we're all just, it's a tiny family, tiny family. But, Gloom. Yeah. I'm trying to think of. I should be on mic when I do this. Gloom. I'm trying to think of the. What was the name of that show on PBS with the drawings and the very beginning? You are absolutely correct. You're thinking of Mystery, I think, on PBS. And it was Edward Gorey's uh, animation. And it's funny you should say that because I'm a big Edward Gorey fan, I'm a big uh, Adams fan. Uh, but Edward Gorey, most people immediately jump to the Gashley Crumtinies, his alphabet of kids dying. But it was actually the mystery animated opening was the thing that, that was like my original sort of inspiration. I loved that little thing when I was a kid. It always sort of stuck in my mind. And yeah, and that was my first, in, uh, my first introduction to Gorey. And so, yes, that was always sort of in the back of my mind and making gloom. It, does that, it's that, the gloom, the, the card game, you're basically trying to create... 
cause your character's demise? Am I getting that right? Well, the way I think of Gloom is the, in Gloom, each person has a family. And the way I like to think of it is it's just one of those conversations where someone says, oh, I had it hard when I was a kid. You know, I had to walk to school both days. And the person's like, well, I had to walk to school with no shoes. And you're like, yeah, through lava, because that was what my family did. You know, that it's the, let me tell you, my family had it worse than you. So in Gloom, your goal is to inflict misery and tragedy upon your family and ultimately kill them while keeping your opponents happy, healthy, and alive. So you say, oh, well, you know, Goody Czar was cursed by the queen and trapped on a train. And I'm like, yes, but while she was on the train, she met that handsome doctor and was married magnificently. And, and so it just is a slight twist on the usual formula of instead of wanting to be the last person standing, you want to be the first one down. Although at the same time, it really is about you've got to make the most tragic story. You know, it's not just a speed thing. You've got to make sure that if you're going out, you know, you're going out not with a smile, as it were. Um, and it also has a strong sort of storytelling element. You know, the most fun of it is, again, you got trapped on a train, but how'd you get trapped on a train? Why'd you get trapped on a train? And that's not required to win the game. But it's part of the fun of it is sort of it's this foundation to to tell a little story about what horrible things happen to these people. So it's, it's, it's kind of a story game as well as being a card game. Exactly. And the main point is just that the story element is optional. You know, it's if, if you're uncomfortable with it, you don't have to do it. But most people find they sort of get drawn in and have fun with that. Awesome. Okay. Uh, and the other thing, which I'm not familiar with, but everyone said, oh, ask him about Phoenix Dawn Command. Yes, so Phoenix Dawn Command. So the thing is, Eberron is my baby. You know, I love Eberron, but it does belong to Wizards of the Coast, and I can't actually do anything with it until they pull it out of the vault again. So I do Q&As on my website, which is keith-baker.com, but I can't, legally, I can't create new material. I can't write Eberron adventures. You know, I can't do stuff, and, you know, that's that's, uh, somewhat frustrating. Uh, and so I knew I wanted to make a new role-playing setting just so I could do whatever I wanted to do. And originally I was planning to make a setting-neutral game, you know, and I was, uh, just a, a world. Uh, excuse me, not setting-neutral, system-neutral. You know, a world that people could use with anything. And I was working on a few things, and then I was working with a friend of mine, and he said, now what about a role-playing game in which death is how your characters advance? And I just found that such a fascinating concept because the thing is you have so many dramatic moments. Like the moment I think of is Gandalf and the Balrog where, you know, it's this amazing sort of tense, okay, we fought our way down, we can handle orcs, we're badasses. Trolls are a tough fight, but we can take it. Get to the Balrog and it's like now it's just a question of do any of us get out alive? And what well, we do because he sacrifices himself to save us. And the thing is it's this amazing dramatic moment. It's not going to happen in like a dungeon I create because be a real jerk of a DM to be like oh yeah this monster is just going to kill you all unless you run away that's just not the style of play but I love some of those moments are so dramatic and and, you know I'm going to hold the guy at the bridge I'm going to throw myself onto the bomb I'm going to do the cool thing so Phoenix Dawn Command is a fantasy role-playing game. You know, it's a classic role-playing game. You have ongoing characters, you do a campaign, you have a game master. Uh, But there's two things that are distinct about it. So it is a relatively low magic world. It is a world in which magic exists, but people have largely left it alone. So it's out there, but it's dangerous. Uh, 
And things have been going well recently, but in the last three years of the history of this world, there has been an increasing range of supernatural threats. It's sort of a combination, I like to say, of like Pacific Rim meets uh, World War Z. You know, just like we don't know why these things are happening. We just know that they're happening more and more often. They're getting increasingly dangerous. We have an army of the dead that's marching up south, sort of White Walker style, that no one's been able to figure out how to stop. We have something called the chant, sort of a zombie analog that can just spread anywhere, start out of nowhere and destroy a city. We have werewolves. We have hauntings. We have mass hysteria. You know, anything you can think of is probably happening somewhere. And we not only don't know why these things are happening, we don't even know, are they related? Is it, Or is it just like, the world's falling apart. Normal people can't handle these things. You can because you're a phoenix. A phoenix is someone who died, underwent sort of spiritual trials and things, returned imbued with supernatural power, and basically every time you die, you go back through the trials, you come back with more power, but you can only come back seven times. So as a twist on things, first off, again, death is how you grow stronger and level up, but also... As you get more power, you have to start being more careful with it because there is an end, you know. So by the time you're seventh level, you are this epic level, or seventh life, you are this epic level character, but this is it. So use it wisely. The second twist on Phoenix is that it uses cards instead of dice. So everyone has a hand of cards, a deck of cards that defines their character. What I really like about it is that the thing I hate about D20 stuff is when you meet the arch-villain, you have your Inigo Montoya moment, you make your big speech, you're going down, man, you use your biggest attack, and you roll the one. And on the one hand, it's funny, but on the other hand, I'm like, I had a movie in my mind, and that was not how that scene was supposed to go. The advantage to Phoenix is there's a random component, because you are drawing from your deck, turn to turn, you don't know what cards you're going to get, but at any given moment, you can look at your hand and say... I don't have the cards to back up that speech. So I'm going to save the speech. It's essentially saying, I know I'm going to roll a five. What can I do with a five? Is there something I can at least do so I'm not just wasting time? And when I have the 20, I'm like, okay, this is it. Now, the final twist on that is you also have a pool of magical energy called sparks. You use them for supernatural abilities and such, but you can also add them directly to your results. So you can essentially, if it's really important for you to make it off of this five, you just burn all your sparks to push up to it. The trick is that when you run out of sparks, you die. So it is, you can buy success, but is it worth it? Is this the time? And what I love about Phoenix is it is a game where in a given adventure, probably half the group's going to die. But 90% of the time, death feels like a choice and it feels exciting. You're dying because you're, you know, throwing yourself into it and using the last bit of your strength to take the giant down or you're throwing yourself onto the bomb or you're, you know, and it just creates these moments that really are just very different from, uh, you know, any other game I've played. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting because it's, it's basically like you know what numbers on the dice are going to be coming up. And, and, I, and you can push beyond them if it's worth it, but you've got to make sure it feels worth it. And the thing about it is it's very much the Gandalf example is the, really the best way to describe the game because when you die, you don't come back right away. It's not trivial. It's not like paranoia and like five minutes later you're back. It's basically you return at earliest on the following day and you only return at certain locations. So death isn't trivial in the particular mission. And part of the point is Phoenix is, it has a horror element, it's very high stakes. I like to say often it feels like 
like basically like aliens. Like, you know, you've got this, you're going in with limited information. You often don't know everything about what you're dealing with. The stakes are usually very high. You know, we're dropping you in a village. You have two hours to contain this zombie outbreak before it spreads too far to be contained. And if you can contain it, you've got, you know, again, it doesn't matter if you all die doing it. But if you all die and it's not contained, it's too late. By the time you come back, we've lost that city. And now there's going to be consequences because you're not dead. You've got to live with the consequences of that. And so it's very much a game where the stakes are high, where, you know, there is this sense of tension, and where, again, ideally it feels worth it to say, if I can stop this thing, even if I have to throw myself on the fire to do it, I'm going to do it. And further, the circumstances of your death, like why you died, what lesson you're taking away from it, or what essentially determine the abilities you gain in your next life. So it's also, it's like basically saying, if the fighter, if you will is about, I died because I wasn't tough enough. And the cleric is about, I died because, uh, for others. I sacrificed for others. It's every time you die, we're going to say, what kind of death was that? And then that's going to determine, essentially, again, it's not fighters or clerics, but still, you know, that's going to determine the kind of ability you gain and, and you know, you add to your, uh, your set for the next life. Cool, awesome. So how has Gen Con been for you so far? Well, I arrived pretty late because we're driving across the country in this 84 van again, and we're doing, like, just a, a road tour. Those are the sounds of Gen Con behind you, folks. Uh, we are uh, driving around to different game cafes, demoing Illimat and talking about our games. And uh, it turns out that uh, we had various fun things, like our windshield wipers stopped working uh, over the weekend, and uh, that makes driving through rain at night not really plausible. Uh, so we got here, actually. I only got here Thursday afternoon. And so this is just my real, really my second day at Gen Con, and I'm still soaking it in. I'm about to go demo um, my new Scott Pilgrim card game. Uh, so I got all kinds of things going on. Uh, but Gen Con's always exciting. I mean, there's just so many things to do and so many people to see. For me, it's really a chance to uh, catch up with some of my colleagues who I don't see very often, so other designers and writers who I really uh, admire and uh, get enjoy getting to see. So I'm looking forward to that. Cool. Okay. I like I always like to wrap up interviews with the rapid-fire questions. All right. All right. Uh, there are... Uh, five player questions and five GM questions. All right. As a player and as a GM. So as a player, character sheet, pencil and paper, computer printed, or a PDF on a tablet? Uh, computer. Uh, so I have it uh, online, but at the table, I'm going to have it with paper and pencil. Okay. All right. Uh, fighter, thief, or mage? So here's the thing. Uh, I, I love thieves. Like, I'm a thief by nature. I'm a Slytherin. But I like to play fighters. Because, in a sense, the thief, i got to think too much about it. It's work. Whereas I like being the big dumb guy who hits things because that's a break from, from life. Okay, fair answer. Uh, uh, GM doesn't ask for a backstory. Do you write one anyway? Oh, yeah. I would figure that out. Um, a die lands on the floor. Read it or re-roll it? Re-roll it. Uh, you're pulling out your dice for the game. Are they the same dice you used last session? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, I have, uh, in fact, you know, personal set of dice I love to use, but also one of the dice I have, uh, in 2009 I traveled around the world essentially DMing for food, uh, and I was in Bulgaria, and there's a whole story I have online, I did a thing for The Escapist about how in Bulgaria, when they started playing role-playing games, uh, they couldn't get dice. 
because basically someone gave them a copy of D&D and they Xeroxed it and passed it around, but they couldn't get polyhedral dice because, you know, there was no way to, to get them. Uh, and so they would, like, get, whenever someone went out of the country, they'd bring back dice and, you know, stuff like that. And I have uh, the, the guy who started all the D&D is sort of was the center of the movement there. At one point, he sold dice to make rent money. Like, his personal collection. Like, you know, is the sort of... And the idea that that could raise sufficient money that, you know... So I have one of those original dice that he sold for rent money uh, in my set of dice. So That's cool. First dice in Bulgaria. Okay, as a GM, behind the screen or out in the open? Behind the screen. My character is an ambidextrous, good-aligned drow. Can I have extra starting cash to buy two scimitars? <laughs> I'll allow it. I'm going to try to convince the guard... To let me buy, what do I need to roll? Well, first I'm going to want to hear some of your concept. You know, uh, how are you? How are you doing this? Uh, and depending what it is, you know, you may or may not need to roll. If I really like your story, maybe it works. Otherwise, I'm having you make a check. What I do, I do just uh, jump in, slightly increasing. What I like about Phoenix is in Phoenix, you have sort of the cards that are just your stat. That's basically like your die roll. But you also have cards that are called traits that describe your character in some way. And they give you a concrete ability, but they'd be like, I'm charming. And with a Phoenix, it's basically, well, if you have that in the right situation, it acts as a trump card. So normally I'd say, well, I need to see 10 points of grace for you to pull this off. But if you're like, but I'm charming, I'm like, yes, that is exactly what you need to talk your way by the guard. So go on. Uh, Two players out of your six players don't show. Play anyway or break out a different game? Ah, play anyway. But adjust the game to make sure that they're not completely, uh, the four players aren't like completely swamped by what uh, the lack of the other players being there. Uh, Can I make a perception roll too? Sure. All right, that's it. That's all I'm. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for taking some time out of your out of your out of your Gen Con day. I appreciate it. No, happy to do it. Thanks for talking. Thank, thank you. <laughs>